Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm Nat. Okay, so today is going to be a little bit different of an episode. As you all know, Natalie and I started school four weeks, three weeks ago now. We're going into our fourth week, and honestly, life has gotten super busy for both of us. And so, you know what? We are going to try our very hardest to keep putting out the absolute best content for you all. But sometimes that means that one of us might not be in the episode. And so today, I'm just going to have a quick conversation about public housing, the history of public housing, kind of how it came to have the reputation that it does today, and why that really matters. So I'll just start by prefacing with most of the sources that we used um, are from Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law. There are a few other smaller articles that I will put in the description of the episode. But just so you know where we're getting our information from when we are talking about public housing. So in the mid 20th century, public housing was mostly for working and lower middle class white families. But when we think of it today, there are often extremely negative connotations of public housing. As Richard Rothstein says, and this is a direct quote from the book, Most Americans have an image of public housing, groups of high-rise towers with few amenities, like playgrounds or parks, packed next to one another in central city neighborhoods, plagued by crime and drugs, filled with Black or Hispanic mothers and their children. So, like I mentioned earlier, today we're going to really explore how public housing came to have the reputation that it does and why it matters. So the initial purpose of public housing was actually to give housing and shelter to those who could afford decent housing, but couldn't find it because none was available. It wasn't just for those who were too poor to afford housing. That was because there was a housing stock shortage, and so the government felt that they needed to step in and fund housing so that people could find decent places to live. And during this time, when public housing was still a relatively new innovation, the condition of public housing was quite different than what we think of as today. They were lower-rise structures and areas that were often uh, greener with trees and grassy areas. So this public housing came about for civilians first during World War I. And it was to house defense workers so that they could be near their places of employment. But like most things in this time, the housing was segregated. And so there would be either no housing for black war workers, or it would be a lot further away from the places of employment and uh, segregated from white war housing options. And then looking forward to the New Deal, one of the New Deal housing efforts was born out of the Public Works Authority, the goal of which was to alleviate a national housing shortage while creating jobs in construction. 
So the PWA, or the Public Works Authority, had this neighborhood composition rule. And that basically established that federal housing projects should reflect the previous racial composition of the neighborhoods in which they were placed, which already is perpetuating the present segregation. It's basically saying that if a neighborhood was previously black or previously white, public housing should not change that. It should not introduce a white family or white families or a white housing project into a black neighborhood and vice versa. So even in the areas that were technically integrated, the PWA would designate government housing projects in areas deemed, quote, more white for white residents only and projects in areas deemed more black for black residents. And that's kind of how they continued to perpetuate segregation, even in areas that were technically integrated. And so this really increased population density experienced in the segregated economy and was a driving factor for slum creation in black neighborhoods. Black people were severely, severely limited in where they could find housing. And where they could was often really crowded and there were not as many resources and investment going into that neighborhood. So once the PWA ended in 1937, the U.S. Housing Authority was created and continued to, quote, respect existing neighborhood racial characteristics. This might sound a lot like the racial composition rule that was established during the PWA, and that's because it really is. It really is about not wanting to disrupt the neighborhoods that were racially homogenous and wanting to keep black people away from white neighborhoods. However, with the Second World War now looming, the Lanham Act was passed to finance housing for workers in defense industries. And unfortunately, this act played a very important role in the further segregation of urban areas. In fact, with this wartime housing, some cities, um, governments only provided war housing for white people, leaving black people to live in congested slums and restricting their access to jobs. The book then dives into a case study of Detroit, where the only public housing projects approved by the city council were in black areas, which further played into the already segregated city. On top of that, keep in mind that in many cities throughout the United States, other mechanisms and tools were leveraged, such as zoning and restrictive covenants that actually barred black families from seeking homeownership in the private market, leaving them with little to no other options than public housing. In 1949, the Housing Act was adopted, and this permitted local authorities to continue to design separate public housing projects, um, so basically segregated housing projects, or to segregate the races within uh, housing projects so they could have you know one housing project but have 
a white building and a black building. And then leaping a few years past that, I want to do a quick summary um, and not dive into all the details. But in 1954, a very, very, very important court case happened called Brown versus Board of Education in Topeka, Kansas. And this court case established that racial segregation in schools was unconstitutional. And there were some people in our government and probably civilians as well who were trying to argue that the ruling reached in Brown v. Board of Education should not apply to housing and that housing stock should continue to be able to be segregated even though there is now a precedent that states that schools should not be segregated or cannot be segregated rather. It doesn't make sense to me, but it just, that was, that was the argument made at the time. Also coming in the 1950s are these newer federal and local regulations that were set forth and they put strict upper income limits for families in public housing. That wasn't around at the beginning of public housing because, like I said before, it wasn't meant just for the poorest people who couldn't afford housing elsewhere. It was, it was to provide housing where there was none. And so beginning in the 1950s, a lot, probably, I mean, all middle class families really were forced out under these rules because they, they made too much. Their income surpassed that upper threshold and once that happened and there was kind of a mass exodus of middle-class families from public housing and it was only the poorest families left the conditions in public housing deteriorated rapidly and Rothstein discusses two reasons for that one of them being that the people in charge of maintenance and upkeep could not live in public housing anymore and so they had to move further away because they made above that upper income um, cutoff and also because they lost so much of their rent base that the profit or the money that went into public housing could no longer cover the budget needed for maintenance and upkeep. The loss of the middle class in public housing was also very significant in terms of political strength and the ability of middle class people who are constituents to insist on adequate funds for their projects upkeep. Um, For most of our, at least from what I am aware, um, for a lot of our history, low income and people of color have had less political strength in terms of being able to advocate for themselves. And so that's one uh, reason that losing the middle class was so detrimental to public housing. And so now the reason that we have this, this perception of public housing, I hope, is a little bit more clear. President Nixon even went so far as to announce that public housing should not be forced onto white communities 
and used words like monstrous, depressing, rundown, overcrowded, and crime-ridden when describing public housing. So what started as this innovation to house people in the midst of a housing shortage quickly became this undesirable, this undesirable option for housing. And so why are we talking about public housing right now? In California, in the state constitution, there is Article 34. And I'm going to read an excerpt from this article. No low-rent housing project shall hereafter be developed, constructed, or acquired in any manner by any state public body until a majority of the qualified electors of the city, town, or county, as the case may be, in which it is proposed to develop, construct, or acquire the same, vote upon some issue. Approve such project by voting in favor thereof at an election to be held for that purpose or at any general or special election. I'm so sorry. I did not read that beforehand, and it was honestly really confusing. Basically, what it means is that California, in any city, town, or county, cannot build public housing unless the people vote yes to approve it. And so... It's been a really, really hard battle to win for public housing ever since Article 34 was established. Article 34 passed in 1950 and stymied local income housing construction in California for decades and continues to do so today. And we are in the middle of one of the most severe housing shortages ever in this state and in the country. We have a huge demand for housing and we cannot meet that demand. Obviously, there are a lot of interests in the state who are for Article 34, one of the main ones being the real estate industry. Um, The real estate industry actually sponsored the 1950 campaign, which appealed to racist fears about integrating neighborhoods and featured heated rhetoric about the need to combat socialism. And in my description of public housing and kind of going over the history of public housing, I didn't even want to dive into that. But um, during like the Cold War and this fight against communism, home ownership was used as something to fight against communism because then people would be trapped in this capitalist system. They would have assets. They would have a stake in the success of capitalism, basically. So 1950, California approves this Article 34 to drastically reduce the amount of public housing that was able to be built because it would have to be approved by voters. And... As I was talking about before, in terms of political power, white and higher income folks have more political power. And they also have, um, you know, reasons to not want more public housing. And so a lot of public housing was shut down by white voters at the time. A lot of people who want to repeal the article 
argue that it is a racist relic that needs repeal, um, especially during, like I was saying before, this housing crisis, and especially an affordable housing crisis. This means that in 2024, California voters will have the opportunity to vote to repeal Article 34 and create an easier path to affordable housing development. But what's really interesting, and I had no idea about, because, um, well, mostly because they happened before my lifetime, but this ballot measure will actually be the fourth time that lawmakers have asked voters to remove or weaken this provision. And the most recent attempt was in 1933. But every time that they've asked people to vote on this and to repeal this article, it has failed by large margins. So I know that this was a shorter episode and not our usual style. Um, I will say doing a podcast on your own is kind of hard. I started over a lot of times. I stopped talking and would delete parts a lot of times. So please have um, some patience and some empathy. (laughs) I am doing this by myself for the first time. But I hope that you enjoyed this episode and got something out of it. And I hope that you can see why repealing something like Article 34, particularly now, is really important. However, we've seen in the past how just because you have public housing doesn't mean it's going to be a success or it's going to be pleasant for the people who live in those projects. And so it's really important that as a state, if we do repeal this article, and honestly, even if we don't, because we're going to keep developing affordable housing, that it's done with intention and that it's done with a sense of compassion and just extra thought for the who will be living there and how the experience will be for them. So thank you so much for listening, and please feel free to ask us any questions. Like I said, I'll drop the sources in the description so that if you are curious more about the history of public housing, the 2024 ballot measure, or anything else related, you can find some resources in the description. Next week, we are having a really exciting guest on the podcast. Alex Sarno. He graduated from the USC Master of Urban Planning program in 2021, or in 2022, excuse me, last uh, last spring. And he and I actually are co-workers now. I just started um, as an intern at the firm that he works for. And so we're going to talk to him about life post-grad in the, you know, kind of immediate months after that, um, how it was finding a job, how he has kind of found his way um, since he graduated from grad school. And so that's going to be a really fun conversation that we're going to have with him. So definitely come back for that next week. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your week.
Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not. 